We have teamed up with 500 Startups' CVC Insider series, where top CVC practitioners offer advice and best practices regarding common challenges encountered within corporate venturing. Featured this week is an interview with Jennifer Art of Intel Capital and Nicola Savage of TDK Ventures. Today is going to be very special because we are going to have one of the very best corporate VC in the world, uh, celebrating 30 years next month. So this is pretty special, Intel Capital. And uh, the person that's really kind for us to be with us today is Jennifer Hart, uh, Managing Director, Head of Investments Operations at Intel Capital, which is a recent role for her. But she's been in Intel for more than 16 years, I believe. So more than half the life of Intel Capital. So we will be able to ask a lot of questions of how corporate venturing for intercapital moved over time and what they've learned along the way. So, Jen, I'm really glad you're here with us today and I look forward to hearing your introduction, maybe five, 10 minutes, your personal journey and what you learned along the way. Yeah, happy to. And thanks for having me, Nicola. I really appreciate it. I've had the pleasure to work with Nicola on an investment that is yet to be disclosed. So we will we'll continue, you know, had a great time working with you so far. Um, So a little bit about me. So I joined Intel 16 years ago, straight out of business school. Um, I joined in the corporate finance role. Um, I had never had corporate venturing or venture capital on my radar. I I went to business school. I assumed I was going to do corporate corporate finance for the rest of my life. I joined and went through a rotation program. We have a rotation program within our finance program at Intel. And rotated through several different business units and then um, landed in a group called New Business Initiatives, which has evolved a little bit into Intel, but but it's really about incubating new businesses within Intel to help grow um, different new ideas within Intel. And so I was working with teams that were essentially acting as startups within Intel, which was a great opportunity. And part of that is we we were working on an e-commerce business, really looking at making a PC, a very secure point of sale terminal. And as part of that, we engaged with a startup company that ultimately needed some capital. So we connected with Intel Capital and started talking to them about, hey, what would it take to get funding to the company? And I ended up working with the deal team, with the investor, with the finance controller on on making that investment and went to the investment committee and helped pitch that idea that we ultimately invested in. And that was really my first exposure to Intel Capital and really thought, hey, this this is pretty cool that they're out there working with startups. Might be a fun place to land. Um, And then fast forward about a year and the controller who I'd worked with reached out and said, hey, we have a finance job open in Intel Capital. Why don't you come? apply. So I thought hey, that would actually be kind of fun. So um, I, I, I joined Intel Capital. Um, that's been about 10 years ago at this point. Um, and I started working with a team that was making investments into manufacturing companies. So things that supported really the core of our fabrication process, which, you know, VCs, not a lot of them invest in really hard kind of technology, but it's materials, chems, gases, all of the really, you know, maybe not super exciting VC areas, but it's actually a really fun place to work. And right after I started, I um, 
help support a deal. We it was a little bit of an unusual deal for Intel Capital. We did a pipe transaction and one in our lithography supplier ASML. It was a multi-billion dollar deal, and I was working on all the valuation behind it, spending a lot of time just trying to figure out oh, do we think the company is, you know, if we invest in this the public stock, is are we going to make money from it? And worked very closely with our business unit on really trying to understand kind of the future roadmap of, of our engagement with ASML. So I helped work on that deal. I went over to Amsterdam. They're, they're actually in the Netherlands and spent a month closing the deal. And just really, you know, it was a stressful time. Clearly the, the day before we invested, I just had this thought, I'm like, we're putting multi-billion dollars. If this doesn't work out, I, I don't know what's going to happen in my career. Um, but ultimately it worked out great. We made a lot of money on that investment and have a great working relationship with the company. Um, but at that point, I, I really, really fell in love with doing deals. I'm like, well, this is really way cooler than doing corporate finance. So one of my colleagues retired um, and I, again, had a great managing director who I was working with who at that point, you know, we started having conversations like, hey, I'd really love to move over to the investor role. So I, I, I moved over as an investment director about five years ago and invested in a few different focus areas. Manufacturing still is one of them. I also um, help support a lot of our sports investments. We have a sport group within Intel, um, and then also have looked at enterprise software along that that path as well. So looked at a few different um, focus areas. So, um, and then about four months ago, I moved into this managing director role that's head of operations, which I was just telling Sean and Nicola is a brand new role for me. And, you know, four months in, I'm still not exactly sure what I'm doing um, and still kind of drinking from the fire hose, but it's really around helping operationally, making sure that we we operate efficiently. And that includes, I, I run partner meetings. Um, I sit in all of our investment committee meetings to really you know, monitor the process and make sure I understand what's in our portfolio, um, which has been a phenomenal kind of experience. I interface with HR, with um, our portfolio development team, who's really working to help support our portfolio companies. I interface with finance, um, really with the whole investment organization and, and really make sure that I run group syncs and group team meetings and make sure that everybody is informed of what's happening. And then Really moving forward, I'm I'm hoping to really kind of help improve operations of Intel Capital by, you know, benchmarking and looking at the outside kind of other CBCs, other funds. You know, how are they doing things that may be different and better than the way we're doing it? Really hoping to help make sure that we are, you know, investing in the right areas and helping you know drive investment thesis and investment areas. So really looking forward to taking on the role and and looking at things more from a fund perspective than necessarily deal by deal. So, you know, I, I think Nicola had asked, has your, has your career gone as expected? And, you know, I told him nobody's career ever goes as expected. And, you know, I, what I will say is that my goal when I graduated was just to find a job where I felt like I was challenged and excited every morning to get out of bed and come to work and do something that's addressing a problem and solving problems. And, you know, that's what I love about CBC is that, 
every new deal we work on is a brand new learning experience, right? You're meeting a new team. They're doing something new. They're passionate about what they do. They love it. And we get to be just a small part of that journey, which I think is super exciting. And then I have the great opportunity to work with just great investors and wonderful mentors who have really, really helped my career and, you know, have really kind of helped me stretch and grow kind of in areas and times when, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking those ways and that that's been a great experience. So um, I guess that's a little bit about me. Happy to answer any additional questions. Thank you, Jen. There are many things I love about what you said, but first I like the fact you're, you have gratitude for your mentors and people helping you along the way. I think that's really, really nice. I like the, the fact you went, go for it kind of attitude. Uh, you're given new challenges and you go for it. I didn't know you started with billion dollar deal. <laughs> so. No, it was it was quite an experience actually. <laughs> it was a really fun, really fun learning experience. And again, we just we had a great team. We had, you know, bankers working on the deal, and we had accountant accounting firms helping with diligence, and just, we had international counsel, we had in-house counsel, we had another outside counsel. We just had this great team and, you know, came together, lots of challenges along the way, trying to get a, a $3.2 billion deal done. But it was, it was a good, it was a really fun learning experience. It's an amazing experience. And one thing you said, which I, I always give as an advice to um, teenagers who are looking for the future is find something you're excited every morning, something you will be passionate about. And I think you, you mentioned it and that resonated really with me. Now you mentioned the billion dollar deal. But can you walk us through your experience of your first seed investing? So early My first seed investing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from an Intel Capital perspective, generally we are more early stage investors, right? I think a lot of people think about CBC and think, oh, you guys are late stage. You're really just investing in things that help support the business, which, you know, we can talk a little bit more about what it means to be a strategic investor. But, you know, we do do most of our deals in early stage. We do some seed. Um, although our sweet spot's really a series A and series B. But, you know, my my first, I'm trying to think of what my first deal is. This has been like five years ago at this point. Um, I actually think that the, co the company we're working on together was my first really, really, truly early stage deal. And it was one where, um, you know, we were approached. This one was actually one where one of my colleagues in the business unit just had this new technology. I'm not going to talk about it because it hasn't been disclosed, but a new kind of um, novel idea in a in an area that we had not previously been been looking at. But but it is an area that is important to Intel. And he's like, hey, I know this founder, and it's really early. They just kind of spun out of a university. Do you want to look at it? And you know, generally that's a little bit too early for us, but, you know, we really started at, at the team that I worked with in Intel Capital, my managing director and I, we really started digging in and thinking, hey, these guys actually have a really unique IP position in an area that has really big kind of implications in multiple industries. And I, I think that's kind of how we look at seed stage investing, right? If you're going to you know, sometimes we joke that seed stage investing is like writing a lottery check, right? Like, or buying a lottery not. ticket, right? I mean, it's like, hey, like, do I want to take the bet? And the reason you would take that bet is just they have something that is very game changing, or it is a founder, a repeat founder that who has been successful for you in the past, right? Because we are very loyal to our 
to our founder base who have made us money, right? A founder comes in who's given us a great return. You know, we're, we're listening to their next idea. But this one was one where we felt like they had a very strong IP position. That part of the team coming out of the university was just top of class of what they were doing. And it was an idea that we felt like had multi-billion dollar implications. So, you know, when you find something like that, then, you know, you support the company. Seed stage, again, it's hard. You can, on this one specifically, you can attest they've been through their highs and their lows. And we've had to, you know, we had some team changes. We've had a bunch of things that have happened along the way, but, you know, really the way that we add value is being there to help support our CEOs and get them what they need at the right time. So, you know, it's been a pleasure working with the company along the way. And I, I'm still convinced they're going to be a huge game changing opportunity. I, I believe so, which is why uh, CDK Ventures. Why you invested? Yeah. And invested. I think they have amazing IP. I wish we could talk about them more details, yeah. but I, I think we'll have to wait until we announce it. Um, but you talk about the strategic value you add. How much of that, especially early stage, this is really about the IP and the technology more than go-to-market at that point. And yet, you probably want to have a view on the go-to-market to, sh to, to shift the technology in the right direction. How much of that can you do when it's so early stage? Yeah, you know, I think the great thing about Intel is we have flexibility to help companies at any stage, right? We have a bunch of different programs where at a very early stage, we can help with engineering, we can help with engineering challenges. In fact, we have a program that functions really, really well called the Embedded Engineering Program, where you know, quite frankly, our principal engineers like working with our startup companies more than they like working with Intel. That's not exactly true. They love Intel. Yeah. Clearly, that's why they work at Intel. But they love working with the startup ecosystem. So the idea and the chance for them to go engage with a startup, a startup company is, is just a phenomenal opportunity for them. So we will work with our startup companies to help put together a plan around what's a, an idea, an engineering idea, a technical idea that you need some help with. We've done blockchain integrations with companies. We've helped them you know, with their software stacks. We've helped them with hardware integrations. We've helped them with all kinds of things. So that's just one area. We can, we can help get them technical support. That's part of, you know, we have one of the world's greatest engineering companies behind us. Like, of course, we're going to use those resources. And then, as you mentioned, as they get later stage, you know, there's really additional ways that we can help them with their go-to-market. We, we are Intel is a trusted advisor to Fortune 2000 companies, right? We're, we're in calling at the top financial institutions. We're in talking to like the biggest IT shops. So being able to go make introductions to our portfolio companies is a huge benefit. And then, you know, there's also our business units who are you know, who are highly interested in the ecosystem that helps support our Intel architecture. So that whether that's obtained memory or whether it's, you know, other types of technology, we're, we're really helping support that ecosystem and we're getting those companies engaged with the business unit. So, you know, besides just the help that they get on the business models and others, just from us being an investor, we, we feel like we, we add a ton of strategic value to those companies. Actually, I want to double click on the business units because I yeah. think that's the place where many CVCs do badly. I think Intel Capital does pretty good, which is the interaction or the membrane between the startups and the mothership and is really the CVC that actually interact with the business units. Do you have maybe some best practices you've seen 
at Intercapital about how best to interact with business units where they see the value and there's high level of engagement, but not to the point where it becomes counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, it is a fine balance that these startup companies are, you know, not all of them are at the stage or 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 have the capability to handle all of Intel going and, you know, infiltrating. So I think the number one thing I'd recommend is just staying flexible, because if you go in there with a model that says every single deal you do has to have this very specific type of engagement. I think that's where you get into problems, right? And I think part of the value of the CBC is being able to be the eyes and ears of the company to address and find trends ahead of where your business units are are working. I think that's just one of the huge, huge benefits of having a CBC. And that's honestly one of the big kind of focus areas that we have, you know, moving forward around how do we take all of that learning we're seeing from what's getting funded and who, you know, what are, who's investing in what and what are the big trends and driving that back to Intel. I, you know, I even think we can do better at that. We, we need to, you know, really try to institutionalize that. But but then, you know, thinking about that all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we have portfolio companies um, or investments where we're signing um, purchase agreements with them, right? We have everything from, hey, it's an idea that's relevant to Intel all the way to we are jointly developing IP. And I think you just need to be thinking about that with every new deal that you know, we are a thesis driven organization, every new deal looks different. The engagement with, from a business unit should be different. It should not be just one size fits all at every stage of the company. It needs to look different. And as you're doing follow-ons, every follow-on is a great time to reevaluate that. Of Okay. Is there more help we can get them from the business unit? Is there somebody else? Are they ready for, you know, our field sales team to go sell what they're, you know, the technology into the field. So, you know, I think my just number one became is like one size does not fit all that there are certain business units that are really good about working with startups and are, have that ability to like intake and work with the business units. There are others that don't, but that's still important areas. And just being able to be flexible on how you're working across the company is really, really important. So for me, this is the first golden nugget of this interview because Many people will see Intel Capital as a big operation, and it is a big operation. Mm-hmm. And they would assume that you follow a very rigid process and, and everything looks the same. But actually, you need this agility of looking at every investment with, with a view of it's going to be different. And so I, I really like your message about agility because small CVCs tend to want to follow a very rigid process because they think this is the way to do and to hear from you and at Intel Capital really looking at every deal differently, this is really, for me, a golden nugget. So uh, one thing you mentioned just earlier is about how you plan to institutionalize driving back the information back to, to yeah. Intel. Can you give us some of what you're thinking about and what you've already tried that's already working? Yeah, I, I mean, and I think part of it is that it, like I mentioned, every business unit at Intel is is slightly different. So there are there are business units that we are engaged with where it works 
really well. And we have an already established process where we meet with them on a very regular basis. And there's somebody in that business unit who is assigned to be kind of the Intel Capital liaison. And they, you know, they are meeting frequently and discussing trends. They're talking about pipeline companies. You know, they're having those dialogues. There are other business units where that that is not the case, right? Where it's more, they're working kind of company by company, or there's a very specific kind of topic by topic they're asking for help on. Um, and what's interesting, so we recently uh, just brought in a new chief strategy officer within Intel. So Saf, Saf is our new CSO, and we we now report through him in the chief the strategy <laughs> office. There's a there's a bunch of different organizations that I'll report up to him, but you know the way that the CEO and the CSO are thinking is, hey, Intel is a Intel Capital is a a way to help drive strategy at Intel. And part of what we're talking with him about is, you know, how do you drive those learnings? How do you make sure that we are getting the learning? So I think there are places and pockets where it's working really, really well. And I think we're, we are still, even after 30 years, trying to figure out, you know, how, how does it work so that it benefits, it benefits people in the way that it, it needs it needs to happen. So whether that's informing roadmaps or whether that's helping, you know, really find trends in a very specific area that they need help with. I think, again, it's not a one size fits all, but, you know, you really need to be driving kind of those learnings when it, when and how it, it's needed. So I, you know, again, I don't think we have this perfected yet. And I think we need to keep, to keep monitoring and working and, you know, finding those champions within the business unit who, who will be able to drive, change and help make sure that what we're telling them gets onto the roadmap and, and helps drive strategy. And, and so maybe this is one of the challenge is you can tell that it has happened. You can show, for example, you influence the roadmap, but how do you quantify that impact? Yeah, that is kind of an age-old question around CVC around how, like how do you measure yourself? Because there is financial return clearly, right? We all know, and it's pretty pretty well known how you measure yourself financially. But the strategic piece of how you measure yourself strategically, I, I think that's hard. And you know, I'm going to say at Intel Capital, we've never figured out a way to have very quantifiable metrics. I think there's ways you can look at it, like, are there specific companies that you found that um, then eventually became some became somebody that the business unit worked with over time. Maybe it was a company that you found that was really early stage, that was in a new market. And eventually that is something that graduated into something where the business unit starts having more and more engagement. And over time, that engagement grows. I think that's one way to look at it. But again, that's really hard to quantify, you know, because I don't think that just saying, hey, an additional, you know, $10 million of uh, Intel CPU sales is driven by Intel Capital coming. I don't think you can do that. I, I just don't think yeah. that's. And I think that some of these companies are selling software. So, you know, that makes it so that Intel CPU, Intel hardware is easier to use, but how do you actually, you know, go out and attribute hardware sales to software? I think that's just a really, really difficult thing to try to quantify. But I, I think there's, 
kind of leading indicators around engagement with business units. I think there are, you know, if you can point to changes and roadmaps that are made based on trends you found, or just overall, I actually think the value of the portfolio, because what we talk about financial and strategic being separate, I actually think you have to have both, right? You can't be investing. And, you know, if a company doesn't do well financially, they're absolutely not going to do well strategically, right? If a company goes out of business, they can't help you strategically. So I think the value overall of a portfolio is a leading indicator of, you know, how much like strategic benefit that they're bringing to Intel. If you're finding the winners that are, you know, really help driving the ecosystem and help drive kind of um, benefit to the whole ecosystem there, your portfolio is going to be worth more. And and in many ways, it's a lot of success stories and storytelling. But sometimes it's very tangible. I mean, if I look at Habana, which you invested early and then you acquired, that one is very quantifiable. Yes, that's true. If we end up acquiring the company and they become an integral part of it, that is, you're right. The ones that Intel goes on to acquire, although I will say that is a fairly small percentage of our portfolio. We are are not the type of investors who are investing to acquire that. That's not how we've set up. We we are a learning organization, but we, you know, we don't set out with the, we're going to invest in something because we want Intel to acquire it. Eventually, that does happen, but a very small percentage. And and does it happen that you decide to invest with a view of an acquisition, or it's never something you consider when you invest? I would not say never. I think there are definitely times where when, you know, just I'm sure as you do, we go through our exit analysis. There are times where Intel is listed as a potential acquirer. Um, But you know, we're not, we're not kind of the late stage invest to acquire kind of an organization. We are, we feel like we want to invest and add value along the way and hopefully grow it to a value where then Intel will see, but, you know, very, you know, I can think of a few, a handful of examples over the last 10 years where we've really kind of said, we're going to invest to, you know, have Intel acquire eventually, but it's really still, there's still things that need to be proven out, which is why they don't just acquire immediately. But if, but if Intel comes to us and says, Hey, invest so we can acquire, we, we generally say, why don't you just go acquire right now? Yeah. You know, yeah. That's is, a good question to ask back. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really, I think, useful for the audience to, to hear because most people think a corporate VC is an acquisition tactic. And I think if that's the case, you're in the wrong path. Um, so I think that's good to hear from you. I think it could work. I mean, I can imagine a, a VC like a CBC like Salesforce may consider this as a valuable tactic. So I'm not saying this can't be a good tactic, but you have to be very clear with your entrepreneurs mm-hmm. what's your strategy. Right. So now we're talking about strategy. So we talk about strategic and financial. And if you listen to my interviews before, I actually don't like this binary question of are you strategic or yeah. financial? Because yeah. at the end, you need to pick the winners. And the winners will add the strategic value and, and the, a high correlation on the financial returns. So it's always about the overlap. Yep. How do you see this overlap playing over time? Yeah, I mean, I think they are so tightly coupled. In fact, back when I joined Intel Capital 10 years ago, we had, as every CBC has, we have our overview deck. And we used to have this slide that had literally two, two a Venn diagram that said the oh, two. Okay. Financial strategy, we literally had that slide that said Intel Capital plays in the middle of these. And I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I have seen examples of you know, companies that are super, super strategic to Intel 
to the point, maybe we are their only customer. And you make the argument, okay, well, Intel changes its roadmap, or we maybe don't order as many tools in a, in a you know year. The company's out of business. There's no way that they're going to survive. And then I think on the complete opposite end, like we could be investing in like B2C consumer internet companies, but what are we going to do to help them? Like absolutely nothing. And so I, the two have to be married, right? You have to find the category winners that will then drive strategic value to the, the company. You cannot look at these two independently and you can't go to either extreme on the financial side or on the strategic side. Otherwise, you know, why, why would Intel want to be my LP, right? They, they have to find strategic benefit, but they also, you know, need to see financial returns from that as well. Like we can't be losing money either. Absolutely. And so what's interesting is when I started being in corporate venturing, which was just two years ago, uh, many people talked to me about Intel Capital as shifting between being more strategic, being more financial. And, and I think it's a total misreading of the situation. It was more about how much independence do you get from business units? But it was never about compromising on financial or strategic per se. Can you talk yeah. a bit more about this? Yeah, so we did, we transitioned probably, I guess it was mid 2018. So I guess at this point, it's about two years ago. Um, Part of what we really were finding is when you are on the end of the very strategically aligned, you you move a little bit slower, right? So you like, if you're always out there trying to find the business unit angle and making sure you have business unit champions and that they're, you know, able to attend your investment committee meetings and speak for the company, what's, you know, the rest of the, the VC industry moves quickly. You miss deals, right? Mm-hmm. You, you're not, you're not able to close deals quickly and you're not able to actually, you know, then realize all that strategic value you were searching for. Um, so, you know, we really, with our last Intel Capital kind of lead, he, he said that, you know, first of all, we have to be able to move quickly within the ecosystem. We have to be able to respond quickly. Founders need, you know, it's not that these companies have endless cash runways. We, we have to be able to work within the confines of the, the venture capital world to be able to win deals, right? And win deals from, you know, if you're investing in category leaders, you're winning deals from really, really big financial VCs or other CVCs. We got to, we have to compete. The other piece of it is that when we were investing previously, we were really taking kind of an eyes and ears approach where we felt like we were going to put lot little money in lots of companies. So in any given year, we were investing in significantly more companies than we are now. And we really decided that what we wanted to do was pick category winners and make them category winners, right? We were going to put in place a much bigger concerted effort to help those companies grow and develop and become financially profitable over time. So what we really pivoted to is taking a more active kind of engaged investment role. So we started putting more money to work. So rather than writing one to three or five million check sizes. Now our average check size is somewhere between five and $15 million. So in any given company, we're take, and we also used to do fall on, we wouldn't, you know, we would price some deals, but we, we definitely were not taking the lead in pricing deals. Now we lead 75% of the deals that we do. So we are, Doing that also, you know, previously we took board observer roles and now we said, hey, if we're really going to impact these companies, we're going to take board board seats. And, you know, we are going to be 
right at the forefront of helping this company grow. And then we also put in place a really strong portfolio development team where we have hired several people who are out working with our field sales team. They are integrating with the business units. They, you know, are working with our product teams. They're setting up kind of technology days where our portfolio companies come in and present to Intel. You know, they're really, really taking this instead of us investing in a ton of companies over time and then investing and kind of forgetting, you know, clearly the investors don't forget about it. We know about all of our companies, but, you know, we, we want to take bigger stakes and make more of an impact doing that. And so, you know, it wasn't more, Hey, we're shifting back to only being financial. That that's absolutely, again, why would, why would Intel as an LP fund a completely non strategic, you know, venture arm, we really needed to, to stay um, strategic, but again, in order to be strategic, like we were just talking about, you have to be able to, you know, go out and win the best deals. You have to find the category win- winners. You have to be able to help them, you know, succeed and grow. And you know, doing that across fifty to sixty investment years, it just it what it wasn't happening. And so we really honed in on we're finding category leaders, we're putting money to work, and we're making them the winners. And you know, that is just it has resonated with founders. They find that we were we are much more engaged. You know, they really enjoy having us on boards. They, you know, find great strategic value with our portfolio development team helping them grow and, and change. So, And to have more influence, I think you also have diversity influence into your portfolio companies more than before. Yes. Yep. Which, you know, happy to talk about diversity just in general, too, because I think, you know, as the venture capital world, which, you know, I think CVCs maybe haven't seen as much of kind of the been as much a part of the diversity conversation within the the venture world. But, you know, we, we've also been on the forefront of diversity, right? About four years ago, we announced we were going to invest 125 million in diverse owned and operated businesses. And, you know, we exceeded that goal in like half the time and have really tried to integrate like, hey, we need to be investing in diverse founders. And, you know, I, I think about diversity a few ways. One is just what what businesses are getting funded, right? Putting money into diverse founders and really finding companies that are being run by by real you know good diverse founders. The second is just getting diversity on your own team, right? We look around the room at your own team and say, do we have a diverse team? And so we've really you know in our hiring practices and you know in our how we develop and mentor people, we really take that to heart. And then the last piece is investing alongside diversity. We really look around and say, hey, are the check writers we're syndicating with are they is there diversity around the table? And you know we're firm believers that having a diverse set of people around the table makes better decisions. I think there's study after study that shows that. That's very nice. And, and I hope Intel Capital continues in that really good direction. Mm-hmm. Really good. Um, I want to talk about the investment committee as well, because yeah. you're a big operation. I think you have 14 investment directors who can make deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I mean, how many deals do you do per year? Uh, uh, new deals, not follow yeah, we, we do about 30 to 40 new deals a year. Um, we have about 30 investors. We also have associates and analysts who are not okay. on top of that 30. So that, you know, they're ones we're working with them on, again, developing our future talent. We really feel strongly about bringing in people and help help growing them into the career. So, you know, we partner on our deals. We're not just lone rangers. You know, we oftentimes part investment directors or managing directors will partner together to make sure that we have a couple different sets of eyes around the table. But 
Um, yeah, so we do about 30 to 40 new investments and then follow ons on top of that. So, so that means that on average, you have one to two investments per investment director, mm-hmm. which means they will have research, they will have spent a lot of time, and then they go to the investment committee with something really nicely packaged. My first question is, how often does the investment committee decline an investment? Does that happen a lot or, or not? Yes, it, it actually does happen a lot. Um, so what we have done is we have domains. So we invest and have five different domains that, you know, these are fluid and changing as, you know, every VC, we have our investment thesis and our areas where we invest and those are adapting over time based on needs. So we have right now we have five domains. Each of those domains has a, a partner who is in charge of the domain and they run domain meetings. So the initial pass of those of those companies and those investments happens within our domain meetings. So the partner sees it, you know, all of the direct investment directors who work on that deal see it, they all opine. It's not it, like if the sector, the domain meeting, they hate your your company, you can still take it to investment committee. That's your prerogative. But you know, clearly they're giving you a lot of things to think about and ideas and things to go back and, and really push on. So we really see that as the opportunity for the team to be involved in investing and helping. Again, the less experienced investment directors have the opportunity to really tap the managing directors and partners on how how would you look at this? Kind of what else have you seen in the space? Um, also, what happens in those domains are they they help develop the investment thesis, right? And that's where investment thesis are really formed and developed. So those are all reviewed in domain meetings. Again, they are taken to the, the full partnership so that the partnership knows what ha- was happening across domains. But um, so uh, that's the first filter. Then they go to investment committee. And I will still say, because I now own all these statistics, we still decline 25 to 30% of the deals that come into investment committee. And that's after they've you know been filtered through. So that's actually a NCE ratio because it means that there's still a point to check there's a good fit with what Intel wants to get to. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And we do a two-part process. So we, you know, we get through our first deal concept meeting, our first um, deal meeting. You know, oftentimes coming out of that, there's a list at Intel. We call them ARs. There's a whole list of uh, action items you've got to go figure out. And then the the final investment committee meeting is really around addressing all of those action items. So, hey, we asked you these ten things during the first committee meeting. What'd you go find? Like, tell tell us about all your diligence calls. Tell us about what the customers said. You know, if we're concerned about the management team, you know, tell us what kind of reference calls you made and what happened. So then even at our second committee meeting, we still decline deals. It doesn't happen as often, right? Because during the first meeting, the management team has come and we feel like if we're going to, if we're really unsure about it, we're just going to tell them no. But if there's, you know, still there's questions or there's always, you know, there's always things you find in diligence. Very nice. And so you have a two-step approach. Nearly the first one is to talk about the deal, what you've learned, and the investment committee gives feedback about possible blind spots or risks or concerns. And then you have the second step, which is really a formal approval. Is that the best practice in your view to do a two-step approach? Or do you think one-step approach is also valid? What, What do you think? Um, I actually think it is a, a really good approach. And here's why. I, I think if a, if a deal team does all of the work that they would need to do to 
to close a deal, they're doing too much work ahead of actually getting, you know, a temperature check, right? And what what we don't want to have happen is for an investment committee or a a deal team to get to the point where like, again, we lead 75% of our deals. You don't want them to get to the point where they're like ready to go issue a term sheet and then the investment committee is like, oh, just kidding. We don't want to invest in that. They've already built up too much you know, they've spent tons of the founder's time. They've done reference checks. They've reviewed yeah. documents that probably companies don't want to give you unless you're really serious. So I do think there needs to be that initial kind of check. And then I think, I think to just from a governance standpoint, you have to have a, a meeting where you talk about what was found during diligence. Like you just need to be able to report back on that. I like the idea of temperature check and maybe it's appetite or seriousness, but these are also a comfort for the entrepreneur to know that Intel Capital is not just fishing around, but actually there's right. a serious check at some point. Well, and what I will say about that is just, you know, it gives the deal team an opportunity to just go voice, like, here's how this all fits into the, the thesis. But, it, you know, it also gives the partnership a chance to kind of say, okay, well, you know, we can do about 30 to 40, 40 new deals a year. Like, is this the one we want to go you know, is this really within our thesis? So it, it's a t- kind of a two-way street there as well. Very nice. So back to the investment committee. How many voting members do you have? How much do you, votes do you need to get the approval? And I'm asking that in the context of the best investments you can make is when you are right and most people are wrong. So going for consensus is not always the right thing. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have a view about the voting process, and afterwards, is it when you didn't have everyone voting the same way that actually get the best deals, or do you have a view on that? Yeah, I I do. So, you know, back in the 2018 transformation that I talked about before, previously, you know, we were run by an Intel Capital president who had to be part of every single deal meeting, right? He was, he was essentially a veto vote. And, you know, you'd say probably single point of failure kind of a, a vote. Then in the transformation of 2018, we put in place a partnership agreement, a partnership because we looked externally and said, Hey, that, you know, multiple voices around the table is the right way to look at a deal. So we have um, five partners, five senior managing directors or partners. They, you know, all have various levels of backgrounds and focus areas. They focus across our, our domain. So, you know, we have one who's really 5G focused. We have one that's intelligent edge focused, cloud infrastructure, enterprise application. They have experience across the board. Um, just given that they're also doing investments, scheduling wise, we can't get five people in every single investment committee. So the way we've done it is we have to have three, three partners or three senior managing directors um, on any committee. So three are assigned to each deal. We keep that committee consistent between first and second meeting so that you're not having to go back and re-educate somebody who was not at the first. So we always have the same committee between the first and the second meeting. We also have um, a CFO delegate who is our finance director. We call him our CFO within Intel Capital, but he is the CFO delegate. He also gets a vote. So we have four people on our investment committee. Within those partners, you have to have a majority, so two of the three. So there are definitely times when one of the the committee members will vote against a deal and it can still move forward. But yeah, completely, we felt the same way that we should be able to have, you know, people who have conviction and people who don't have conviction being able to voice those opinions. Very nice. And I think you mentioned to me that 
no partner can vote on their own deals they're proposing. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, we think of our partners as player coaches, right? They're not just kind of sitting up there approving deals. They're working on their own deal flow. And, you know, they have great industry contacts. Clearly, after doing this, some of them 20, 30 years. I'm trying to think. I think we... We have some who have 20 years of investment experience. I don't know if we're any any of them are up to 30 years, but you know they they clearly have better deal flow than anybody else in the whole organization, and and you know are sitting on boards and are engaging with companies. So, um, yeah, they are working on their own deals. Clearly, any deal they'll pull in the associates, the analysts, they find that it's a great training opportunity for them to be bringing in less experienced investment directors or even partnering with managing directors who they feel like, you know, they want to partner up with. Um, So yes, if you own a deal, you're not allowed to vote on it. So if you're part of the deal team, you don't get to be a a voting member of the MRC. We don't don't let you play both of those. So it makes a lot of sense. So Actually, one thing you talked about is raising the bar for the team and the associates and so on. So at TDK Ventures, whenever we have the investment committee, I set a very simple rule. The investment director who's proposing the deal is the only one who can speak, but everyone else can join and listen in so that they understand what the investment Mm -hmm. committee is saying, what they like, what they don't like, and we all learn at the same time. How many people join this investment committee and, and can learn from this experience? Yeah. Yeah, we actually have a very large um, deal meeting. So we feel the same way. We want to be able to let people learn. Um, So who we have in our investment committee is the deal team. That can be two or three different people. Um, You know, generally it's analysts or associates. We actually have um, a rotation through our, our associates. We have one associate who every six months will attend the committee for six months. That person just actually... We, we're saying, hey, it's a great learning experience, but they also track stats. So they're tracking like what is happening in our investment committee, who's voting. All of that comes out in minutes, but they're but they're capturing all of that too. Right. So part of it is just that we're using them as tracking. I attend all of those as the um, head of investment operations. I, I am probably the only one who attends kind of all of them. So I'm the consistent view of who sees what's on our deal. I'm not a voting member of our committee, but I, I see everything that's coming in. Um, then we have our investment committee m- members, including finance. And then what we've started doing is actually rotating, doing two-week rotations through our investment committee with our investors. So we've said, hey, you know, over the years, you probably have only attended your own investment meetings, right? And so you don't know how, you know, other investors are coming and presenting things and you don't know like how the investment committee like is responding to things in different sectors. So we started doing two week rotations. So we have investors and the, the way we run our investment committees is you have to publish materials two days ahead of that meeting. And then the investment committee members read all the materials ahead of any deal committee member. The the committee members have read through every piece of material and have asked questions ahead of time. So it's not that the investor is like pitching it for the first time. The investor, the committee has seen it all. And the expectation for people coming through doing their rotations is that they've read through all the materials and they're they're asking questions engaged. So we, we have a lot of people sitting in our investment committee. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's a good dialogue and an opportunity to, to teach people and, you know, make sure we're we're being consistent across the organization. So we've actually found a lot of value in doing that. It's very nice. What, what I'm realizing from this discussion is Intel Capital is in this continuous improvements and 
thinking about new processes. And this is really, really cool. I mean, like I said at the beginning, you're about to celebrate 30 years old in January for Intel Capital. And yet you're still thinking about how to improve the process and raise the bar. This yeah, really and I, I think you have to be, right? And I will say we implement things that are utter failures, right? I mean, we try some okay, things. Give one example then. Of, I, yeah, failure. I'm trying to think. Of, well, so one of the things we did when we, we, we kind of said, hey, all of the investors can go do any deal, right? Like if you're an investor, you are not, you're not tied to a specific silo. So if you can find deal flow in a sector that is not yours, by all means. So we basically told everybody, like, go for it. Like, go do any deal you want. And then what we were finding is people were bringing in deals in ecosystems they knew nothing about, right? And so then we started saying, well, maybe we need to bring this in a little bit more. So then we started saying, well, if you're doing an investment in a domain you don't know anything about, you have to bring in somebody who is a domain expert, right? So that you're partnering on the deal. Um, and then we've gone a step further to say, hey, really, let's put in place these domain meetings. We're not all the way back to sectors. You can do any deal you want. You are at liberty to go you know, get deal flow from wherever. But there are processes in place so that you're still investing in the thesis and you know what's going on in the ecosystem. And we're not just bringing in, you know a bunch of intelligent edge deals that don't relate to each other. It all still has to come back to the investment thesis. So, you know, I will say that's one thing where we're just like, go do deals. And then we were like, oh, wait, we need to put a few more parameters around it. So we, we've, you know, we've come around a few things and said, okay, maybe we didn't need to go back to that extreme, but, you know, maybe let's do something else. So, so I will say, yes, we're reacting uh, like a startup. You, you, yeah. You try saying it doesn't work, you pivot quickly. So that's really cool. Now, Intercapital is also one of these corporate VC where you have a wide spectrum of areas of investments, which are very different between them. Is that a case where you should have one or multiple investment thesis? Yeah, so right now we have five domains and these change over time, right? They are very thesis driven. So our, you know, and I would say some of our, some of our different domains are a little bit like one of our domains is 5G intelligent edge and autonomy. So there's a lot packed into that, right? And I will say within that one sector, we have thesis around 5G. So what are the things we really need to be helping and driving with 5G? That team is heavily engaged with our 5G team. Um, intelligent edge, we have our IoT team that, you know, those investors are really engaged with our IoT team and understanding kind of, and then autonomy, you know, we have Mobileye. So that team is really, really like talking yeah, to Mobileye. Team. But all, but but they're all interrelated, right? Because clearly an intelligent edge solution has a huge amount of 5G implications. So, you know, they're meeting together and comparing, but there's separate thesis on all of them. So, um, so yes, those evolve over time. And, you know, it's not that we will continue to have five domains for the rest of our lives, right? We'll be flexible for where, but this is really where we feel like these areas that we're investing in right now are a very good intersection between what's investable in the space, right? Because there are things Intel does that we just have found, like either there's IP risk, like we just can't invest in a startup because Intel's developing its own IP, right? There's areas that are not yeah. investable. And then, you know, so are they investable and are they strategic? And these are kind of the areas that we've 
talked about the, the process for getting a new domain or a new thesis in place as you go to the investment committee. And those, we, we generally try to have everybody in those meetings. So it's not just three, but we try to find time either during partner meeting or investment committee where people come in and actually present the investment thesis. And we talk about the domain and a lot of times so you go back and find more information and, you know, we'll, we'll have those discussions, but we don't take that lightly. And we really make sure that we're trying to invest in key areas that are strategic and financial goal. Very nice. And I like the fact that you're very clear about what's not investable, which I think is something that re- requires rigor. Um, yes. So I have one question about best practices around being on the board of a company. So we are on the same board of one company, yep. but I, I'm sure you have a lot of best practices that you've seen. What would be one or two tips, maybe that relates more to a corporate VC, because there's yep. also some loyalty to one and to the other, and, uh, and, and board is yep. a really serious thing. So do you have best practices that you can share? Yeah, we could probably talk about board engagement for hours, to be completely honest. Maybe another interview then. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I will say is your legal department needs to be involved in decisions around whether your, your CVC should take board seats or not, right? There is both ends of the spectrum. If you are taking board seats, the first thing you need to do is put in very, very clear practices by your legal department on how you train people on what a board member does, because we both know your fiduciary responsibility as a board member is to the comp- to the startup company. It is not to your CVC. So you cannot go in as a board member and start pitching Intel like you need to do this because it's better for Intel. That is not your, your fiduciary responsibility. Your fiduciary responsibility is to the startup company you're on the board for. So if that's going to be a problem for the company, you're your LP, your LP, you you need to have that discussion, right? Whereas you don't, you aren't on a board member, a board seat to help Intel, right? That's not legally, that's not what you do as a board member. Um, the other very clear thing that there are definitely um, repu- there's like a reputation among CVCs around, hey, if I share information with somebody, it's going to get back to the business units. And, you know, we several years ago put in place a very clear, very different Intel Capital NDA that says, if you share information with your Intel Capital person, it is not going back to the business unit. And the examples of that that are extreme, but where founders are really sensitive is, if it's a manufacturing company that's our supplier and they tell me what their costs are and then I go tell our manufacturing team how to negotiate, <laughs> that, I mean, that that's absolutely a way to like, first of all, get yourself sued. And second of all, to just destroy all trust you have with your portfolio company. And so you, yeah, you have to have the separation and you have to, you can't just talk the talk. You have you have to walk the walk. If your business unit comes to you and says, hey, can you tell me about their IP? You say, nope, here's the contact name. You go call that company directly. And so you have to be very, very diligent about how you act as a board member. And then, you know, if you are acting on behalf of Intel or your shareholder, you have to make that very clear to your founder, like, hey, I'm having this discussion as a shareholder. And, you know, there's different votes for what happens with the board and what happens with the shareholder. But as a board, your board member, your fiduciary responsibility is to the company and to act as a board member to the company. So thank you. I think I agree with everything you said. And I was very surprised there was no training about the difference between an observer board member and a full board member. So I asked DLA Piper to write a training for my team and myself. 
And they, they did a superb job. So actually, if anyone wants to learn, they should reach out to Gary Piper or ask me and I, I will introduce. But uh, I think it's extremely important to understand the differences. And, and I nearly feel like it's also important for the entrepreneurs themselves to know the difference between an observer and not. Because the fiduciary obligations are different. The confidentiality is the same, but there are many things that are different. So yeah. I, I, I agree with you. It, it's not something you just decide on one day if it's observer or not. Uh, yeah. Well, in our, our legal team, we go through board training every single year. I have a training I have to take. It takes me about an hour every single year. And honestly, when I started my job, my, my manager was you know, a great support. He was like, hey, there, there are tons of trainings for board members. So I went and did, I think it was an NACD, a National Association of Corporate Directors training for a week. And it, literally all you talk about for a week is what your responsibilities are as board meeting. I, remember, I highly recommend it if you are new to boards to go get some external training on how do you think about being a board member? The challenge is most of this training is about the full board member, not the observer board member. That's true. That is very true. So if you're just a board observer, it may be overkill. But if you are thinking about doing board seats, actual board memberships, I highly recommend it. Very nice. So we are getting to the top of the hour, and I want to talk about something you look forward to the future. So in your new role, which is kind of a COO role, and you've been working with other people in different, uh, in similar roles in different organizations, what is your one or two goals you aim to achieve uh, in the coming years? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, what I have told the partnership, what I want to do is make Intel Capital run better, right? That's that's really the whole goal. And whether that's making us more efficient, making us more um, attractive to founders, making us just a better well-oiled machine, just we, we run really well right now. We have, you know, extremely professional team, but whatever I can do to help us, you know, be able to pick up best practices from other CVCs, from other VCs and being really able to, to implement that and make us better investors. You know, that's, that's my goal. And, you know, I'm super excited about it. I've already learned a ton. I still feel like I'm drinking from the fire hose, but I, you know, I think it's a really exciting role. And when you talk to other CEOs, is there one best practice that was not obvious? And when you heard it, you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, not really. What's interesting to me is everybody has their own way of doing things, right? Every structure that's set up is completely different. Um, you know, there are definitely things around like the fringes of how people operate, how they do partner meeting, how they do group meetings, how they inform investors that I'm I'm implementing little, little bits of pieces already. Um but no, I will, what I think I go back to is like your your form needs to match what what you're doing and your intent. And everybody does that a little bit differently to meet their needs. So I think just going back to our initial, like you need flexibility to be able to do things. Perfect. I think it's a great way to end up this, uh, to end this interview. Uh, Jen, you were fantastic. Thank you so Thanks, much. Nicola. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.